This is Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic. And now your host, Michael O'Fallon. There is a question that I've been asked frequently over the past two years that needs some explanation and as well, some context. And although this question has been asked of me several times over the years, it was formally and publicly asked of me by Dr. Josh Bice at the G3 pre-conference in Atlanta, Georgia, this past October. And here's the question. Quote, why did you, a Reformed Christian, bring Dr. Jordan Peterson and Dr. James Lindsay into the discussion? In Christianity. End quote. And to properly and fully answer this question, let me explain the context first, especially in regards to sovereign nations. So we'll first hit a few things, starting with what sovereign nations is, how I discovered the work of Jordan Peterson, and how, providentially, I came to know my friend and colleague, Dr. James Lindsay. So, first, to put my answer about Dr. Jordan Peterson and about Dr. James Lindsay in the proper context, let me first explain a few things about sovereign nations that you really need to know. Sovereign nations is not a ministry. I never intended for sovereign nations to be a ministry. But that being said, it was and is important to address the issues of the creeping progressivism into Christianity as manifested through critical race theory, intersectionality, and all things justice-oriented. And by far, I am, as a Reformed Christian, incredibly concerned about what the Gospel Coalition and even some of my former clients have agreed to do in regards to pushing the radically subjective, critical race theory-based, Derridian, Foucauldian, and Marcusean concepts that are coming into and have been pushed into evangelical Christianity over the past 12 years. But the purpose of Sovereign Nations was meant to be an open forum a meeting place, for those that had many different metaphysical and theological and even political opinions to meet together and to try and both figure out how to fix what is happening as a co-belligerent whole, but also in their particular affinity. For darn sure, what I am not interested in is a very dishonest coming together, like what was manifested in Evangelicals and Catholics Together. You might have known it as ECT where evangelicals were told that they needed to disavow their soteriological distinctives. I didn't want any part of that. And heck, I was okay with disagreement in the ranks. Because that's okay if disagreements were made known. But the primary purpose was to bring men and women together who were experiencing this ideological cultural revolution and help them to understand the breadth and size of the assault, and also to define the threat with clarity and precision. Well, I wanted to make sure that we were precise and accurate. And in 2017, I kind of saw that we had one shot at starting the formal battle against what had already been enemy infiltration into our ranks, and what really is fifth-generational warfare. So... I had to start Sovereign Nations. No one in evangelical or Roman Catholic circles had any idea what was actually happening around them. Although I would say 
that my first real exposure to understanding all of this came from a Catholic priest in Gainesville, Florida, 30 years ago, revealing a whole bunch of things to me and introducing me to Malachi Martin. It would be that meeting, and in the years of reading Father Martin, that I began to understand Hegel and the dialectic. This is where my understanding of Gnosticism and alchemy was really codified. Father Malachi Martin, who was quite high up in the Vatican for a time, was really opening up and exposing what was going on in the Roman Catholic Church, and properly showed how, through that vein, that it would be affecting evangelical Protestantism as well. But it was the assembling of a new religion. A religion that would cast aside the soteriological and orthodox understanding of Christianity for a focus on social justice, for a focus on a strange, hermetic new religion, a religion that would pull in every other faith as well. Now, providentially, as many of you know, I was pulled into the center of this rather twisted postmodern ecumenism from 2009 till around 2013 or 2014 both in the realms of faith and within political and corporate circles as well. And this is where the meetings happened that were using the same tired phrase, quote, there is a change coming and there is nothing that you or anyone else can do to stop it. And then it would continue to, quote, we need to be focused more on social justice or we need to be less concerned about what is objectively true and more about what truth works and all that kind of nonsense. And I heard this phrase over and over from men who were thought as leaders, let's say, in the corporate world, in neoconservative politics, and in the realms of the Christian faith. And you could clearly see that the dialectic was at work, especially in some of the meetings where larger global political affairs were being discussed involving China, the great Western foundations and think tanks and the United States as well. And all these folks understood that a major change was coming. And 12 years ago, those that knew that they were going to make this change had to start planting the seeds in the fields. They had to do some operational preparation of the environment. Especially in the Reformed evangelical circles, they couldn't pull this entire ideological and theological shift as easy as, let's say, the Roman Catholic Church, because, you see, the Roman Catholic Church could just flip out their old conservative pope for a new, radical, progressive, social justice-minded pope, and voila, everything is changed from the top down. So the evangelical reformed new Calvinist group had to be built on a coalition, a coalition that would dialectically and gradualistically move the center of evangelical faith to the mushy middle and then squarely to the left. But in every other sphere of influence, there had to be top leadership that had to be on the team to make this massive ideological shift happen. And it had to be the top leadership that prepared the eventual shift in epistemology that prepared the shift from a republic to an oligarchical technocracy. It's a way that you can end around the constitution, let's say, change the form of government from the very top, always had to be from the top or else no one would follow. You had to have the top-down leadership, the very top of the business world, the world of finance, global political leaders, leaders in education, 
leaders in science and research, leaders in the media, national political leaders, leaders in faith, all faiths. And then, all at the same time, those leaders and their organizations needed to begin to make their move in lockstep. So when you heard the need for equity, diversity, and inclusion, you heard it from everywhere, from everyone, from every single source of media. It didn't matter. So when you heard the screams to end what they fancily called systemic white oppression, which is their way of framing capitalism, you heard it from everywhere, from everyone. When you heard whiteness being decried from corporations, politicians, on both the right and left, by the way, from education, from faith leaders, and even from what would be considered reliable conservative think tanks, like, unfortunately, let's say the Heritage Foundation and their woke leader at the time, who is no longer there, K. Cole James. You heard it from everywhere, from everyone. And when I started to speak to people in faith, politics, and the corporate world about what was going on, strangely enough, it was in the political world, especially from folks in conservative politics, that what I had to warn about and what I had to say received the most traction. And where I thought I had the most influence, and that would be in Christian ministries where I was serving on boards and planning strategies for them, that is where I had the most pushback. And I received pushback from people that I really respected. Now, of course, during this time, J.D. Hall and Brandon House had already started to point out that some strangely Marxist overtones were coming from folks like Russell Moore and others in the Southern Baptist Convention. But I was attempting to explain apologetically what was really going on in painstaking detail to my friends in the ministry. And I was rebuffed. Or I was told, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't see it yet, Mike. Now, this was back from 2013 to 2017, and I honestly didn't want to be the guy that would first stand against critical race theory and political progressivism in the church. I didn't want to be that person. But no one else would really follow the road that needed to be surveyed and then paved. And I would give book upon book to my ministry friends. And unfortunately, even though these books described exactly what's going on, well, whether it be Delgado and Stefanchek, whether it be Derrida, whether it be Foucault, whether it be Marcusa, one-dimensional man, and as well just giving them links to things like repressive tolerance, no one would read it. They would just gather dust. And the few that would want to embrace a broad, wide description of something that is easy to understand as opposed to the detailed descriptions of what was really going on. They like to say just broader things like, cultural Marxism, which is not necessarily wrong, but this is so much bigger than just Gramsci or Marx, or just saying that it is postmodernism and then just blaming everything on Foucault. And it goes much, much deeper than that. And you will need to go back to Rousseau. And you will need to understand Kant and Hegel. You will need to understand Marx. You will need to read the Fabians. You will need to read and understand H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw. You will need to read Rauschenbusch and Zane Batten. You will need to understand the critical theorist Adorno and Horkheimer. You will need to understand the postmodernists, all of them, especially Derrida and Foucault. You're going to need to read Mao. You're going to need to read Popper and Soros. And you will also need to spend an awful lot of time in Marcusa. 
And we will pick up on Marcusa later in this episode, but Herbert Marcusa is one of the real keys in understanding what is happening around us. But my ministry friends were, for the most part, unwilling to go down this road with me in the early days of 2016 and 2017. Some of my more politically oriented friends, though, could see it. And when I spoke, they wanted to hear more. But one of the problems with many men who are in high places in ministry, or many men in Christian Reformed communities, let's say, is that they're not willing to see the entire problem for what it is. And because many men are afraid that they will lose those big honorariums from the seminary that might be involved with all of this. And they know if they start naming those names, they're going to be ostracized. They're going to be cast out. Just like sort of what happened to me. Or they were afraid that they would be pushed out of the larger community of theology as a whole if they were to say that the Gospel Coalition, the SBC leadership, the PCA, the ERLC, and many other ministries are working for a gradualistic dialectical process to push in critical race theory, intersectionality, and progressive globalist socialist ideology into the church for the purposes of a big transition or reset in 2020. Now, many men might pick up on some of the descriptions of CRT and other issues. But they would hold back. They wouldn't punch hard. And they wouldn't begin to go really deep, or they wouldn't name the names of those that are doing this. But most people in ministry had no idea about what critical race theory or radical subjectivism even was. And the last thing that they didn't want to do was condescend to listen to a chubby businessman tell them what to study or what to think. And see, this is part of the problem. Because you have institutions that were built to stand on truth, protect the church from error, to protect it from threats and so forth. But let's face it, every single one of those institutions failed in helping to prevent the incursion of this radical ideology. Now, many of them knew that there was a problem. But in going deep and exposing this problem back in 2017 would mean that most of them would be excluded from the wider community if they told the truth. They would be out on a limb. Out on a limb with me. So look, I understand. I understand the hesitation that they had. But I needed someone who really, really understood these issues. Who was fighting this fight in their own field of study or in government. To really hit a home run. To help open the eyes of people so they could understand what the real problems are and the ideologies behind them. To open up the eyes of so many in the political and Christian world that they just didn't understand what neo-Marxism is, what critical race theory is. Remember, this is 2017. People weren't listening to me. I had to find somebody that had that clear voice of someone that wasn't me, let's just say. And then you need to help people to understand why you should never try to incorporate Derrida or Foucault into your ideological canon, because that's what was being done at the Gospel Coalition. And I needed someone who didn't care if the hierarchy of Christianity or education or the political realm would be upset about what they're saying. Someone who would just tell the truth about what was happening. So, around late 2016, I was introduced to a number of videos created by Dr. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson didn't just get things right about the ideologies. 
And Dr. Peterson also knew that we would have to actually stand up and fight the implementation of these ideologies, tooth and nail. Dr. Peterson provided the best arguments against compelled speech that there are still online today. He didn't flinch. He told the truth. And Dr. Peterson had a phenomenal grasp on the dangers of neo-Marxism and postmodernism and how these twisted ideologies rip apart any objective meaning in our life, in our culture, and in our civilization. So I asked Dr. Peterson if he would speak at the very first conference by sovereign nations and by anyone ever held against neo-Marxism, postmodernism, critical race theory, and intersectionality. And to his credit, Dr. Peterson took a red eye to Washington, D.C. on October 31st, 2017, and took a red eye out. While he was with us at the Trump Hotel in D.C., Dr. Peterson could have not have been more gracious and kind. And his discussion, The Marxist Lie of White Privilege, is still the gold standard on the subject. And that is why I had Dr. Jordan Peterson. I wanted the best person the man who had a deep well of knowledge on the subject, to be the person to speak on these difficult and challenging issues. And Dr. Peterson continues to lead in truth-telling. And because of this first conference and the material that was created, many men started to listen in 2017 and early 2018 to what I was trying to warn about. They weren't really taking much action, I would say, but at least they were starting to listen. And I know it sounded like a lot of hyperbole that we literally had only two years or so to really get this done. And I know it sounded like I was losing my mind. I am glad that Dr. James White listened and started to really think through the issues that has proved valuable over the last several years. And since 2014 or so, when I had been talking to many men in ministry about the coming ideological and global revolution, I tried to explain what this wicked ideology actually was. This wokeness was a new religious paradigm. It was a strange mix of Hermeticism, Gnosticism, and Hegelian Marxism with an Augustinian framework, a born-again element of being woke, a structure of justification and re-justification, of a new canon. It was all there in its ugly form, particularly in the intersectional model. It also had some similarities to Scientology, which I was very, very familiar with in spending many years in Clearwater, Florida. Josh Bice and I had talked about this quite a bit in 2018 when he really, really began to see it clearly. Tom Askell and I spoke about this at length, especially after he had spoken to several of the men that were behind the movement in the Southern Baptist Convention. And then it happened. In the summer of 2018, I was taking a shower in, of all places, a castle in Donegal, Ireland, listening to one of Jordan Peterson's lectures. It's kind of what I do. Um, For the past seven, eight years, I listen to lecture after lecture after lecture when I go to bed, when I get up in the morning, when I take a shower, when I'm shaving, because I work a lot. I run several companies and I don't have a lot of time to just sit down and plop down and read a book. I do that as well, especially on plane flights. But when I'm doing other things, I listen. Now, that lecture by Dr. Jordan Peterson on YouTube ended. And what queued up next on YouTube was a lecture called, Is Intersectionality a New Religion? With three panelists, Dr. Peter Boghossian, 
Helen Pluckrose, and Dr. James Lindsay. And I was drying my hair and shaving, and I remember this distinctly. There was a moment when I stopped and froze just to listen, with my half of my face shaved. And I listened for a good 15 minutes, long enough for the other side of my unshaven face to go cold again. To hear Dr. James Lindsay, an atheist, explain how intersectionality and wokeness had a very Augustinian characteristic. And James Lindsay went deep, deep into epistemology and knowing and subjective approaches. It was by far, by far, the best explanation of this entire subject that I had heard or considered so far. And so I started to contact Dr. Bogosian and Dr. Lindsay. And long story short, we started talking. After listening to the lecture by Dr. Lindsay in 2018, another 60 or 70 times or so in the next few weeks, I sent the lecture to Dr. Bice and Dr. Askell. What followed was further development of the understanding that what can be understood as critical social justice was in fact a religious movement with Augustinian characteristics. This discussion manifested itself in Dr. Bice's presentation in January of 2019 called Intersectionality, Brave New Religion. That can be found on the Sovereign Nations YouTube page. We also expanded the discussion in January of 2019, that same night, on the Augustinian structure of wokeism on our panel with Dr. Askell, Dr. Bice, Dr. Bauckham, Phil Johnson, Dr. White, and Tom Buck, where we examined the characteristics of this new Gnostic, Hermetic, and somewhat Augustinian religion. Uh, also, as a side note, I did another presentation about 10 months later in Memphis, Tennessee, where I went through all of this structure with graphs and, and so forth. And you can find that on our YouTube page on Sovereign Nations. Well, eventually, our discussions expanded with Dr. Lindsay and Dr. Bogosian. We met several times, and most notably, a four-day get-together with my team and Dr. Bogosian, Dr. Lindsay, and their, their filmographer, their, their producer, Mike Nana, in Las Vegas, where we honestly talked ourselves to death. And what we decided there in Las Vegas is that we would eventually get together to just have several of our already robust conversations that we were having personally captured in a cinematic fashion. Because what everyone across the world was soon to discover was that whether you are in education or business or in Christian ministry, in the media, in politics, or in law, this parasitic ideological cancer was coming in the same way into nearly every affinity group. It really didn't matter if you were Ford Motor Company, Oreo Cookies, let's say, a knitting group, or the Southern Baptist Convention. It was going to come in, this toxic Hegelian Marxist Marcusean stew, and it was going to tear your organization and your lives apart. And that was, and is what is known as the Trojan Horse video series, recorded on a rooftop in New York City. And that set of conversations on deconstruction and critical race theory and on radical subjectivity changed everything. It changed the entire conversation for everyone. Because the woke emperor had no clothes. 
And so everybody tweeted it out. Everybody from Donald Trump Jr. to Sebastian Gorka to Glenn Beck. It was everywhere. And those conversations propelled us into meeting again in London, England. And we spoke again. And it was time to begin putting together an organization called New Discourses. And one of the reasons that this was important to do with Dr. James Lindsay is because Dr. James Lindsay didn't care about his acceptance in any one particular affinity or religious group. He was just going to tell the truth about what was happening around us. And many men in ministry just won't do that. Isn't that interesting to hear that? They will refuse to really tell the truth without filter, or they will grift. And during this time that we were getting close to James, Pete, and Helen, I kept on encouraging them to read Erbrich Marcusa, Eros and Civilization, One Dimensional Man, or for starters, the real important work that really opened up my eyes years ago, Repressive Tolerance. And some in the team really didn't have any motivation to even consider Marcuse's role in the entire ideological mess that we were facing. That is, except for James Lindsay. And James Lindsay started reading Marcuse. And he saw it. And he couldn't stop. James Lindsay devoured Marcuse. And within just a few months, James Lindsay was the most ideologically well-rounded person, really, to address any of the issues associated with critical social justice. James Lindsay's Social Justice Encyclopedia at New Discourses is by far the most comprehensive work in existence for definitive understandings of the woke terminology. And before I go on any more about James, I also want to state that James Lindsay is also one of the most honest, trustworthy, and loyal men that I know. And it angers me how much grifting and replicating there is of James' work without one ounce of attribution. Others still want the spotlight. But James Lindsay has completely shown the way for just about every author that has written anything about critical race theory in the last two years. There was basically apologetics against the woke before James with all sorts of generalizations, etc. And then the specifics of the details of CRT and every bit of minute terminology after James Lindsay and new discourses was really there. New discourses had become the gold standard for these issues. And of course, now everyone wants to write books since they now know what all of this is about. But in the Christian world or in politics, they won't go to the very heart of the issue, the very center of the who, how, and why. They won't go into the politics of what is driving all of this. The corporate, the fascist totalitarian heart that is the very center of this movement to change everything. But James Lindsay, he will, and he won't compromise. And so I know that there is another bull ready to run in the vineyard, a man that will be more honest than the vast majority of my Christian colleagues, a man that will tell the truth and damn the consequences, and a man that isn't here to just build up his own siloed organization. James Lindsay, you see, he's here to win. We have some differences between us. Yes, we do. But I love this man as a good and trustworthy friend. And I know that we are going to be in a lot of ideological foxholes together. I mean, heck, Kimberly Crenshaw's organization, Listen New Discourses, is one of the top five threats against CRT and intersectionality. Alyssa, I am glad that we are on. But as we strive to save America and to save Western civilization, I am so thankful that James Lindsay 
is on our side. You know, the other side can have Ibram X. Kendi and Russell Moore. That's fine. And what should have everyone cheering right now is that after battling a long period of sickness, Dr. Jordan Peterson is up and feisty once again. And it appears that he will suffer no fools. So, a challenge to all my Christian pastors and leaders who agree with us on so many of these things but are afraid to point to your leadership and name their names. If it wasn't for a few agnostics and someone who is in between the Christian faith, to be the front line of this battle to save our faith, your denomination, and your flock that you're supposed to be shepherding, where would you be? Probably just writing another book about how CRT is bad while Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary is teaching standpoint hermeneutics? Letting all the progressives take control of your denomination? While you hope to work quietly behind the scenes? While you secretly hope that an agnostic will fight the fight for you? Is that what our soft spines and soft Christian leadership has become? Well, it's time to get a backbone. Get your shoulders back. And go to ideological war. Time to get marching, men. Because right now, it appears that the mama bears and the parents that are in Loudoun County, Virginia and Fairfax County and in Texas. So it appears that a lot of these women have much stronger spines and better backbones than many of our Christian pastors who are still afraid to offend. This is the time to offend. And on a personal note, if you have enjoyed the video series and discussions that we've had with Dr. Lindsay Stephen Hicks and Jordan Peterson. Well, we want to keep on making those. But I want to ask something in this time. Would you consider a gift to Sovereign Nations this year? We want to continue to make all of our content free to the public, but our costs are high and our resources, which were robust before the pandemic, are becoming difficult. We could use your help because we must continue to educate we must continue to fight on. And we must win. I'm Michael O'Fallon, and this has been Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic.